Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The Rose Bowl. The game that inspired the college football bowl season has a long and storied history. The stadium itself is 100 years old, and in celebration of it, Pigskin Dispatch is assembling some of the top historians and authors to share the memories, people, and events that make the granddaddy of them all the special game that it is. Enjoy this Rose Bowl memory from pigskindispatch.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. We are right in the middle of Rose Bowl month and having a great time doing it, telling the history of the stadium that was built 100 years ago. Uh, this year, 2023 game will be the 100th anniversary of it. And we, as we've been doing all month long, we've been bringing in guests, historians, and authors that know a lot about the game. And, uh, you know, each one has a, his own topic. And we have another great topic today. Uh, I guess we've had on just about a couple months ago, uh, Dick Friedman, welcome back to the pig pen. Well, thank you very much, Darren. It's great to be back. Dick, we really appreciate uh, you coming back on again. Uh, a couple of months ago, you, you talked about the school that you write for, and you wrote a book on uh, you know, Coach Percy Houghton, just a spectacular book. And maybe before we get going here, maybe you could uh, remind us of the title of that book and where folks can get it. Sure. Uh, the title is The Coach Who Strangled the Bulldog, How Harvard's Percy Houghton Beat Yale and Reinvented Football. And it's published by Roman and Littlefield, and it's available on Amazon. And, uh, hey, everybody should buy it. What can I tell you? No, no, really, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it was a lot of fun to do. It deals with um, uh, Percy Houghton, who uh, in, in, from 1908 to 1916 um, compiled a magnificent record uh, at Harvard, including a 33-game unbeaten streak. Um, and uh, is kind of a forgotten figure today, Big, partly, uh, as I say in the book, because he uh, was coaching before the days of the newsreels. Um, if he had been coaching in the 20s, um, we probably would all know a lot more about him. But anyway, I found him a fascinating figure. I called him the first modern football coach. And, um, uh, you know, I found uh, some amazing stuff about him, including a book he wrote a hundred years ago this year called um, Football and How to Watch It. And it's available on Google Books uh, for free. And anybody who wants to read it, I think will be amazed at how well it holds up a hundred years later. Um, The one area, of course, that it doesn't really 
uh, go into as much as we would go into it today is in the passing game because the passing game was not nearly as developed. But in terms of so much, especially in terms of deception, um, motion offense, uh, uh, even offensive and defensive formations, it really, you know, you can really have it in front of you and and really uh, not lose that much if you're sitting in front of your television set um, reading it in terms of, of how you're watching football. So anyway, I recommend it to anybody, uh, football fans, who, who might be interested. Wow, that is uh, definitely one that I'm going to be looking up here in, in the next uh, couple of days to get my hands on. That sounds very intriguing indeed uh, to see what uh, Coach Houghton was thinking 100 years ago, especially with your recommendation on it. Well, you know, we have you on today uh, to talk about the Rose Bowl, and uh, it right. really ties in with your expertise because uh, the subject matter that you, you chose to talk to us about today uh, involves Harvard, uh, where Coach uh, Houghton was, spent a lot of his time uh, shortly after uh, that 1916 period, but not too far off. Uh, right. So we are really uh, anxious to, to hear what you have to say about that Rose Bowl. You know, you're right. Percy finished at Harvard in 1916. Actually, after that, he became a part owner of the Boston Braves baseball team. He was a, he was a baseball fanatic. Anyway, that's a story for another day. And, um, and then after the two years after that were uh, World War I, in which uh, uh, college games were, for the most part, um, canceled or became kind of informal. And uh, so really... 1919 was the first season that everybody was back and Harvard did not have Percy Houghton as a coach anymore. They had a new coach named Bob Fisher, who had been one of Percy's stars in the early part of the decade, had been a star tackle. And uh, Harvard then embarked on a, a, a rather undemanding schedule. I would say, for the regular season. Um, they, they played a lot of games that were, I think, were a little more than glorified scrimmages. Um, but kind of that was by design because they wanted to, to keep guys um, uh, in shape and, uh, and uninjured for the so-called championship games against Princeton and Yale in the, in the latter part of the regular season. Sure enough, when they played Princeton, which before the Rose Bowl was their only road game of the whole season. Um, it ended up a 10 to 10 tie, a very, very rugged game. And uh, so a lot of people said at that point um, that Harvard uh, had knocked itself out of national championship consideration. Um, back then, essentially, uh, very few teams were really national championship contenders in a given year. And, you know, it was Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, a few other teams, Michigan, maybe got Minnesota, but, but the Eastern teams got a lot of, a lot of weight because of the, of the press, you know, the New York press, the Boston press, the Philadelphia press. Anyway, Harvard uh, uh, tied Princeton. Then they played um, Yale and uh, their, you know, traditional rival and, that was a very tough game also, and Harvard managed to win 10-3 to um, when a Yale uh, receiver dropped a pass that could have been a touchdown. Anyway, we've seen that before, and they had already seen that themselves <laughs> because Harvard and Yale started like in 1875. 
So anyway, uh, that ended the regular season for Harvard. And in a normal season and in every other season that Harvard has played football, 147 of them, that was the end of, of football for the season. However, uh, the Rose Bowl, which uh, I'm sure is your um, your uh, uh, other authors are talking about, was then kind of in its infancy, um, was looking to, to really uh, increase its imprint. Um, they had already had Brown and Penn out there uh, playing. Um, you know, these schools, the big Eastern schools, were supposed to bring great prestige to the Rose Bowl, Tournament of Roses Parade. And uh, so they had approached Harvard before. Harvard had always said no. And the reason given was that the uh, the team could not get back to Cambridge before classes started for the second semester. Well, this particular year, which would be the end of 1919 and the beginning of 1920, um, the, uh, the uh, schedule was tweaked and the Rose Bowl came at him again. And this time Harvard accepted. And there was yet another reason for it. And that was that Harvard, as Harvard uh, often does, was undergoing a large fundraising campaign, you know, a national fundraising campaign. So they figured that this would be a way to uh, show the brand, um, not only in California, but also in the train stops along the way um, when they took the train out from, from Boston to, uh, to California. And uh, it would be a great way to uh, to advertise the brand and raise some money. So this time they accepted. Um, it was considered a great a great get for the Rose Turner of Roses Committee to have this uh, ultra prestigious university, the the uh, oldest in the United States, um, you know, to to appear in the Rose Bowl. And that's why uh, the Harvard team got on the train at South Station in Boston and took a six day train ride out to California uh, to get ready for the game. Wow. Six days. Wow. I, I can't even imagine. I hate being in a car for like three or four hours, uh, alone being on a train for that long. Oh, that's uh, well, that's... well, you know, I, I will say, you know, somebody who likes trains back in the day, trains were not what they are now, which are kind of bare bones transportation. Their trains had a little bit of a uh, of luxury and class to them back then. I'm not sure that the Harvard guys, you know, traveled first class, but still, you could get up, you could stretch. There was a dining car. Um, you know, you could uh, you could uh, play, go play cards with your buddies, uh, do whatever you want. And so it was a, a little different. I'm not saying it was an easy ride. It, it, it probably wasn't. And you're right. I mean, they're probably by the third or fourth day and you're you're out in the middle of uh, Nebraska somewhere, you know, you probably are, are not happy. But even so. Um, again, it was, it's not like what the trains are today. You couldn't do it today. You could be very difficult today. Um, so anyway, that's, that's what they did. And, uh, and, uh, they showed up and, and of course, as you mentioned, the actual Rose Bowl stadium was not in existence at that point. Um, uh, this was two years before, uh, the, the actual Rose Bowl stadium that we know, um, you know, and so, so. You know, while this, I think, was the sixth game that was Rose Bowl game that was played and they got a big crowd, but nothing like like they get once the Rose Bowl stadium was built. OK, now, did they have like stops along the way that they could 
take the opportunity to to do some uh, prep work for the game, you know, like run a, a practice or, you know, just keep your physical prowess about you, you know, just run around a little bit. Or yeah. It- once, once they, they did have stops, they, once they, they didn't get out and do a practice, I believe till it was somewhere like Wyoming. Right. I mean, it was, it was a long way before they got out and, and ran a practice. Um, after that, they, they did semi-regular practices. And then once they got to California, you know, they had, they were able to do their regular practice. Um, these, these were young, uh, fit guys. Several of them had been in, in the war, had been in the military. And, um, so, you know, uh, they had come back to school and, um, and their, their class, a lot of them were officially like in the class of 1919, which had already graduated. So these guys were actually graduating after their, after the rest of their class did, um, kind of like what's happening today with, with the COVID stuff where, where guys, you know, got, um, extra eligibility because of, of the, of the illnesses. But this, this was the case where these guys had been in the army or the Navy depending and, um, came back. And, uh, and so they were kind of hardened veterans. And so kind of were used to this kind of hurry up and wait style of, 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 uh, travel and training. Okay. Now, do you have any of the names of uh, some of the, the more recognizable players uh, that were more prominent players that played in that team? The most recognizable would be a player, a player named Eddie Casey, who is in the college football hall of fame. He was their best player. He was a, he was a, a back. And as, the, as was the custom back then, he went both ways. Um, uh, Another guy, uh, kind of his running mate, was a guy named Arnold Horween, H-O-R-W-E-E-N from from Chicago, and um, he was also another another back. Those were their two best players. So, so is he is he one of the famous uh, Horween brothers that played for the Chicago Cardinals? He pro- yes, he is. Okay, he is. okay, and and they are they are you know uh, they they were a part of a big Chicago pipeline recruiting pipeline. Um, that they had even back then. Right. I mean, they had, they had pipelines and uh, uh, so, yeah, they, so they had, uh, so those were, I would say those were their two best players. Um, A guy who figured in uh, was a sub uh, named Freddie church. And um, as you, as we'll find out, Freddie church figured into the game and, and off it so often happens in, in not only with Harvard, but other schools, uh, a little used sub comes in and and uh, and makes a big play, right to a crucial play, and that's kind of what happened. Um, and they, you know, they had a, they had a, a good strong uh, line, and but no no superstars, I would say, even for them. You know, they they had rolled over a bunch of a bunch of teams that kind of were not in their class, but. Um, you know, the, the, Eddie Casey and Horween, I'd say, were, were your two well-known names that that I would say football historians or people who, who followed that era would know. Um, both also ended up coaching Harvard um, uh, after Fisher. Uh, Casey was right after Fisher, and then Horween was right after Casey. So you know, they were. That's the way it was done back then, and um, and to a degree is done today. All right, so. They're they're out in uh, California now and getting ready for the game. Uh, who who's going to be their opponent for this Rose Bowl contest? Their opponent is Oregon, 
you know, the, the Ducks uh, had played, I guess, a somewhat typical West Coast schedule, you know, and they were they were a good team. They had already beaten, I believe, uh, had beaten um, Penn when Penn came out in the Rose Bowl a couple of years earlier. Um, so, you know, they were they were, uh, uh, you know, considered to be the strongest team on the West Coast or at least the one that that the Tournament of Roses wanted to invite. And, uh, you know, with things being a lot less formal and codified than they are today. Um, uh, so, yeah. So, but, but, you know, I think it was interesting because it was a little hard to, to tell when I, when I read exactly which team was the favorite. Um, you know, Harvard was kind of the favorite because they were considered the national champion. Um, but, but Oregon was, you know, uh, was from a, a growing football region um, and had played a tougher schedule. And, uh, and uh, you know, so I, th- I think if you really look at it, even from a vantage point of 102 years, you know, you might wonder, you know, how, how Harvard could stay with them. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, 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 uh, Certainly, if they played today, uh, it would be a different story. Harvard and Oregon. Uh, I would. I personally would love to see it, but you know, um, uh, I'm just kidding around now. As Harvard has, you know, been an Ivy League team uh, for sixty plus years now. But um, uh, so it was an interesting matchup. I think that's probably the best way to put it, and it turned out to be an interesting matchup. Yeah, I think those are always sort of the ones that are unknown. You know, uh, you know, you look at like how the the World Series used to be set up, where there was no interleague play, and you really you had these, right. you know two great teams playing all year. They never faced each other. They played a little bit different style. Everybody was sort of on the edge of their seat. How's this going to match up when they they you know these come in contact with each other? And I think that's the same way probably uh, Western football and Eastern football was back in that era. You know, because you really weren't connected with communication and television and everything that we have today uh you know people were sort of still growing the game and developing the game uh but then when you have these two powers you know from thousands of miles away playing once a year it had to be very interesting i'm sure yeah there certainly was a nice air of mystery about it and there even was an air of mystery in the in the in the game i would say up till maybe 20 or 25 years ago, because, you know, the Big Ten and the uh, Pac, whatever it was then, Pac-8, Pac-10, Pac-12, um, didn't really play. They didn't play each other very much, certainly. They didn't play that many common opponents. Um, in this case, they, they had no common opponents. And um, so you could you could really build this game up. As the uh, mythic, you know, the battle of the um, of the effete East against you know the uh, the rugged West, and I think there was a little bit of that. For that matter, I think also that that was yet another reason that the Roses Committee, you know, wanted them because they would they would get all sorts of publicity all over the country. Um, that that it was Harvard, it was a it was an unknown matchup with with a lot of uh, excitement building because of that. So now the other thing is, um, you know, I mentioned earl- a little earlier that there were no newsreels uh, or newsreels were not as prominent back then. They were in their infancy. What there also wasn't was radio, right? I mean, just a few years later, these games would be 
broadcast nationally on the radio. And that certainly brought a lot of excitement. And um, and it would be a way for fans to to really tune in every New Year's Day and and follow it. Uh, but in this case, there wasn't, you know, there you could like in Boston, go, go to the offices of the Boston Globe or the building and follow the game um, on, a, on a like a scoreboard outside the uh, outside the uh, building where they, you know, they'd have it get the play play by play on wireless, you know, by wire and um, and kind of show the progress of the ball. Um, not not as satisfying a way um, as even eight or nine years later that people would have with the radio. So um, uh, that was a big factor, I think. And, uh, you know, you kind of had to wait till, till the, you got your mm-hmm. newspaper the next day to find out what the score was. Well, you know, it's, it's funny you say that. I had, it was last year, the year before, we had a game. Uh, it was an NFL game, and my, my team was playing, and it was uh, blacked out here. We couldn't, we didn't have it on here. And for some reason, radios weren't getting it and my Sirius wasn't getting it. And I'm like, well, what the heck's going on here? So I was, had to w- sit there and watch the screen on, you know, CBS sports or something where they have the possession, you know, the ball has a little field and the ball's moving around. And that was right. probably one of the most painful experiences I've ever had to have of trying to enjoy a football game. Cause there's such a pause in between of the, the plays where when you're watching a game, I don't think you really notice it because you're, you're enjoying seeing, you know, subs coming in and out and, you know, coaches sending in plays and the huddles and it's all part of it. But when you're just watching a blank screen, it had to probably be painful back then. It was probably even worse than what I was watching uh, to, to see the game, but uh, Hey, they had to get the information somehow. Well, you know, of course, of course, if there is only one way to do it and that's to go to the, to the globe building, right. And see the scoreboard and the, and the progress of the ball. And you're watching this and you're seeing it, you know, what's happening and everything that's happening, you know, you're, you're, you're gasping, you know, you're saying, Whoa, first down. You'd think that there's nothing greater than that. Right. Cause there's no radio, no television, no nothing. You go, it's never going to get any better than this. Right. This is the greatest thing ever. This, this scoreboard. Right. And that's the way we, we are with all technology, right? So, because what you're referring to is the GameCast, right? That that the mm-hmm. that the CBS Sports does, and and the, all the others do. And sure enough, right? I sit there the same way you you did, and I'll sit there and I'll go, boy, you know, in the old days, this was the way people did it. <laughs> and uh, and you're right; it seems like a crawl and a total waste of time. But the fact is, for them, this was the most exciting thing ever. Right. So anyway, uh, we, we digress. We digress. Right. Uh, I guess the other element is uh, the elements. They, I'm sure it probably wasn't a real warm uh, day on New Year's Day up in Boston those times either. It's, uh, well, but people were tough back then. That's right? true. That's true. And if, <laughs> and if you really wanted to watch it, you did it. You know, um, I can I can as somebody who grew up there. I can tell you, you know, you you uh, you just did what you had to do in, in the winter. Um, um, but yeah, it was a, uh, uh, that was it. That's the way you, that's the way you watch it. And of course, word of mouth, the word would get around. Um, I, I suspect that it may also be that, that various Harvard clubs, um, could do a wire, you know, could do a phone thing, right. And have somebody call in, um, with, with the, uh, the phone 
bill being prohibitive back days back those days for most people except for those rich guys in the Harvard Club, right? So um, so there were all sorts of ways. But anyway, it was a uh, you know it was an exciting game, and and the uh, the Harvardians were were very the football fans of Harvard, of which there were many because Harvard was a football power back then. Um, we're thrilled to to do this, and uh, and uh, you know it worked out well for them. Okay, well, maybe you could tell us a little bit, maybe of the the game flow and uh, maybe some of the the big events that happened during the contest. Right. Well, the game flow was was a slug a slugfest of the kind that we don't, we rarely see nowadays. Um, both teams just just uh, ran the ball a lot, um, and. Uh, in the second quarter, um, the Harvard brought in Freddie Church to try a field goal, and uh, Harvard being relatively close to the Oregon goal line. And uh, what Freddie did instead was he faked the field goal. This was a drop kick, and uh, faked it and ran around the uh, the left end, fifteen yards, and that was it. The game's only touchdown. Uh, he kicked the extra point. Harvard led seven to six. And that, my friend, was all the scoring. That concluded the scoring for the day. Uh, Oregon ran the ball 90, 90 times. Um, and uh, smash mouth football. Uh, Orween broke his uh, dislocated and broken arm um, and uh, stayed in the game. And uh, all that all the players who were in the game um, were were came out of it with the black eyes and bruises. It was just a literally bruising game, and uh, uh, you know when the game when Oregon got down close a couple of times to try to take the lead in the second half, and Harvard blocked two of their field goals and forced another one wide. Um, uh, but when the game ended. The Crimson was a foot away from another touchdown um, that would have, uh, you know, given them a 13 to six and maybe 14 to six lead. And if it was a 14 to six lead, that really would have been the game because there were no two point conversions in those days. So the game ended seven to six for Harvard. And um, it was just a rough and tumble uh, smash mouth game. Well, now, did I hear you right? You said that Oregon ran the ball 90 times yes but so they must have had uh chip kelly must have been coaching the the ducks way back then <laughs> yes that's yes a, chip, I mean, that's a lot chip, for for running the ball because you got a, a running yes. clock on that it's not you know i understand when you have right. passes mixed in but it, wow that that's uh right quite some right. momentum right chip chip was there chip <laughs> chip was trying the, the trickeration um but you know harvard was on to it no they uh they uh you know, this is, you know, per the accounts that I've read, that Oregon just pounded away. They pounded away. They thought they could really, um, you know, kind of uh, have have the Crimson track. Uh, in, a, in an account that my friend John Powers, another Harvardian, wrote, um, he wrote, when the game ended, Harvard was a foot away from another touchdown. We misjudged you, Oregon captain Everett Brandenburg told the Crimson players at the hotel. We did not believe that you would fight, but you certainly did. And uh, you know, again, that was the I think the stereotype of the of the effete, rich, 
East Easterners um, coming out. And, um, you know, what they showed was, uh, especially the guys who had been in the military, that this was a tough, hard-nosed, hard-nosed squad. And, um, you know, they, they, in, in those days, they did what it took to win a seven to six game. At uh, any time you have a, a one point game, it had to be a good game, you know, and I'm a lover of defense. So that probably would have been a great one to watch. So it's a shame that they, they didn't have a video coverage of the game back then, because uh, some of these games like that would probably be tremendous to go back and watch today. There is one, uh, one video that I saw or a film on YouTube of the Harvard Princeton game of that year uh, in, in 1919. And, um, you know, you get, a, you get the flavor of it. I think when you watch the, the film, it's a little hard to follow it. I mean, I, I will admit that it's fun. It's fun, but it's a little hard to follow it. Um, uh, and you see that it's a lot of, a lot of running into the line and it's a lot of trying to sweep the end and, um, you know, what you don't see is guys in the pistol dropping back and, and flinging it, you know, and the spread formation, you know, that was yet to come, yet to come. But, uh, but it's fun. It's fun to watch. I mean, especially because you kind of know what's going to happen. And, and um, uh, you know, for some of us, let's face it, that's what we do. That's what we do. We love it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that the listeners can agree with us on that because uh, that's why they listen to, to podcasts like this and, and read uh, books like yourself, right, on you know, preserving football history because it's just such a great sport and there's so much variety to it and such a, a, a great tradition and history involved uh, with games like this that are just tremendous to, to enjoy. The, the other thing I should mention that, that John Powers uh, – uh, wrote about was the return that the uh, Crimson got in Boston. Um, you know, he mentions that the squad returned to what he called a monster welcome in Boston. The players were given gold footballs and Church was awarded his letter, which he had not received before this, um, because you have to play in the uh, Yale game to get your letter. And then he said, John Power says, and Harvard has never has played another postseason game. So the 1920 team again went 8-0-1, blanked Yale at the bowl, and called it a season, as it has ever since. And that is true, uh, Darren. I mean, I, I, I will can honestly tell you that I think Harvard will retire with a postseason record of 1-0-0. I think that will be it for, for the Crimson in the postseason, unless something changes radically, which I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, they do not play. Uh, they're they're in the FCS, but they do not play postseason. The Ivies do not play in the postseason. So hmm. um, I think this is going to be. I think this is it. You know, get a one thousand winning percentage in the postseason. That's now, it. Now, why do you think that they continue that today? They, I'm sure they probably don't start classes like most universities till you know, a little bit later in January, a week or two into January, is it just tradition or is it uh, for some other reason? It's, it's back when the Ivy league was formalized in 1956. Uh, it was done to consciously get out of the big time football business. And as the years went on, of course, Ivy league football de-emphasized more and more so that it ended up in the in the FCS rather than the FBS. And 
I, I once asked somebody who had been highly placed in the Ivy League um, uh, hierarchy, and I said, you know, what, what's the uh, what's the reason? I mean, what you know, why why not when you have a spectacular team as they do many years? Why not give that team a chance to proceed in the FCS? And he looked at me and he said, because that's the line in the sand that the Ivy League draws to say that we're not in the football business. And uh, that's it. You know, you, you, you know, you know, going in when you're recruited that there's not going to be postseason football, right? There, nobody, nobody comes in thinking that, that things are going to change and there's going to be, you're going to have a chance to win the FCS national championship. Just not the way it works. Your final game is the Saturday before Thanksgiving. That's it. That's your last game of the season. So, you so know, after that. So, so it's probably more of uh, an homage to academia over athletics in, in, at the college and show the importance of, you know, those are, you know, pretty much known to be, you know, especially Harvard of being the, the top schools in the world for, you know, academics to go to and how hard it is to get into uh, entry into the school of learning at, you know, at Harvard and the Yales and the Columbia's as opposed to some of the other, you know, fine universities we, we have around. So maybe, maybe that's uh, sort of the angle they're taking. On the other hand, as many people point out, especially rabid Ivy league football fans of which there are still a few, they still, they play in the, in the Met in March madness, you know, they play in, uh, in the hockey tournament. You know, the frozen four. In fact, Yale won it a few years ago. Right. Um, so, but that's, that's, this guy said to me, football, that's the line in the sand. That's to show that we are the Ivy League. That's what the Ivy League's about. And football being the signature sport, you know, we are not in the big time or even the semi big time football business. Right. And if you want to be in that, you should go somewhere else. Right. Hmm. And so that's that's what it is. That's what it is. And uh, it's as I say, there have been some teams over the years that have been tremendous and would have certainly given a good account of themselves in the FCS championship. Uh, Princeton has a team this year that I think could do that. You know, they're they're eight. No. And and they're two games from running the table, although they have their two tough games that they'll be playing. But let's say they finish 10 and 0. You'll start hearing people saying, wow, you know, what a shame that this team, you know, can't go on, can't can't go to the playoffs. But that's the deal, okay? And the coaches tell that to everybody when they're recruiting, and there's no, there's no uh, fakery about it, right? It's just that's what we are. We play 10 games every year, and we finish the Saturday before Thanksgiving, and that's that's it. That's it. Wow, some very interesting insight on it. It's uh, something I, I mean, I don't know if the listeners know, but I, I wasn't aware of of that. I guess I never really thought about how uh, you know they, you know, I get they didn't really pay attention that they weren't in the bowl games. I guess uh, till you mentioned right. it. So that's a very interesting right. stuff indeed, and uh, great research on, on the game and the the travels of this uh, team from you know hundreds and some odd years ago too. So really appreciate you you coming on here, Dick, and uh, you know, sharing this Rose Bowl memories with us this month and uh, helping us enjoy and preserve some some more football history from that era. Well, I'm I'm delighted to do it, Darren, and I should also add 
that I have one personal memory of the Rose Bowl, and that is um, uh, in 1974, uh, I was out here in California um, and at New Year's. And uh, if I was out here in California, I was sure enough going to go to the Rose Bowl. And I went, I went to the Rose Bowl that, that year. Southern Cal played Ohio State, which they often seem to do in those days. And, um, and I walked around and, and I don't know whether they still have the various benches with the scores of each game on them. Um, but sure enough, I came to the 1920 game, Harvard seven, Oregon six. And a guy was standing right next to me and we started talking. And I said, well, yeah. And my school, my team went to that game. And the guy looked at me and said, oh, you went to Oregon? And I said, <laughs> oh, well, no, nah, not quite. Not quite. So, yeah, a little bit of, little bit of pride and, um, you know, for, for uh, winning that game. And um, I, I guess the, the, the next game that I saw of an Ivy League team, and I don't know whether you're getting into this at all, is uh, 1934, the famous upset of Columbia, whom you just spoke of, uh, of Stanford, which is, you know, a, a total shocker and considered to be one of the maybe the biggest upset in college football history. Um, and uh, so, but I think that's the last time an Ivy League team um, appeared in the Rose Bowl and maybe in any bowl at that point. So, and um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, that's that's all we have. You know, that's, that's all of us, all of us wonks and nerds have. Just these few little little moments of glory. That's it. That's it. Well, hey, you know, not everybody. Uh, you know, m my school's in Division Two, so we never get to see much of anything. So, uh, but uh, you know, like the Alabamas and the uh, Ohio States of, of the world. But uh, hey, you know, that's why there's uh, you know hundreds of, of different college football teams across the country, and everybody gets a get a little bit piece of the game and enjoy at whatever level they're playing and enjoy their team and root for the players that are on there and have some great memories. So uh, just like the ones yeah. that you shared with us today of this uh, great Rose Bowl game. So you know, Dick uh, Friedman, thank you very much for, for joining us here in the pig pen once again and talking about some great football history. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. A special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the Pigpen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, 
with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network. 